Well, good morning. As Josh mentioned, and as you can see, I am not Pastor Jacob, although we get confused quite a bit. So we will not be in the book of Matthew this morning, but we find ourselves looking at Jesus' instruction still, but from the book of John. So if you could turn to John chapter 12, we're going to spend our time looking at verse 20 and beyond. John chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 20. We're going to see Jesus' instruction to his disciples. And as you turn there, I want to share two stories of supposed disciples of the Lord Jesus. And if these two examples sound not good to you, they are not worthy of imitation, it's because they're bad examples. The first example is from the movie Silence by Martin Scorsese in 2016. The film is based on the true story of two Jesuit priests who traveled from Portugal to Japan to find out what had happened to their mentor, Father Ferreira. There are rumors back in Portugal he has apostatized. When they arrive, they experience the torture that he did. They find out the rumors are true and they eventually apostatize too, meaning they leave the faith. They renounce it. They spend the rest of their lives in Japan, adapt to the culture, And whenever they are called before Japanese officials, they step or spit on images of Jesus. And the movie ends with a scene that was added by the director, it was not in the book, of the main character being buried, and his wife secretly slips a small cross uh, into his hands as he's being buried. The cross representing this secret hidden faith that he had the whole time throughout his life without anybody knowing. That's one example. The second example is that of Karl Barth. Perhaps you've heard of him. He's considered by many to be one of the most influential theologians in the 20th century. Yet, here was a man who lived in sexual sin. He was married, but he also had an ongoing affair with his assistant. In fact, Karl lived with both his wife and his mistress. He justified his sin theologically. He wrote to his mistress, quote, It cannot just be the devil's work. It must have some meaning and a right to live. I love you, and I do not see any chance to stop this. For Bart, the only pious option was to remain in the tension between the revealed commands of God's word and his assumed approval of God and his love for his assistant. It couldn't possibly, possibly be, he thought, that God intended for him to deny his affections for a woman who wasn't his wife even though that's what scripture clearly teaches. He thought he was in an impossible dilemma where the closest thing to obedience was to stay in this adulterous relationship. Commenting on this situation, one person asked the question, what are theologians for? Is that it? For a theologian, somebody who studies the Bible their whole life, to be able to sit in an armchair or write things that make you meditate and wonder? And then for them to get up and then harbor sin and live in sin? Is that worthy of imitation? Is that even tolerable? The answer is, of course, no, as we're going to see today from John 12. I want to slightly modify that question, what is a theologian for? And I want us to consider this simple question, what is a disciple for? What is a disciple for? Is a disciple somebody who can secretly hide a cross out of sight of anybody, okay with rejecting Jesus in public or being quiet, 
and somehow still holding on to a, a little bit of faith? Is a disciple somebody who can manipulate, justify, and enjoy his sin? The answer to both of those is no. A disciple is to obey and be like his master. Jesus, of course, is the master. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. As disciples, we should obey and be like Christ. So that leaves the question, what does Jesus command his disciples to do? What is the example that he has left us? And that is where we go to John chapter 12. Jesus' commands for us are really quite simple. There's no confusion about what he's saying. The difficulty is in us receiving it and obeying it. So I'm going to pray before we jump in the text and ask that God would bless this time. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the, the word incarnate. As we meditate on his birth this time of year, and as we've been in Matthew and now in John 12, would you help us to study his words, his actions, to see his example, to obey. By your spirit, would you help us to receive this word, to obey it, to bring you glory. I ask it in Christ's name, amen. We're gonna begin in verse 20. It's John chapter 12, verse 20. And we're just gonna look at the context. This is the background for the teaching that we'll see today. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we see a feast. This is Passover. Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. We see that Greeks are coming, which is significant because Jesus has mostly been focusing his ministry to the Jewish people at this point. And we see that repeated phrase, the hour has come. It appears multiple times in John's gospel, but every time before this, John 12, the hour has not yet come. But now the hour is here and something big is happening. So what is this hour for which Jesus came? We'll discuss this more, but look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. It is the time for Jesus to be crucified, to be hung on a cross. So this is the context. Jesus is in Jerusalem. The hour has come. The Passover is here. He will be that new Passover lamb. He is being sought by peoples, the Greeks. Jesus is on the cusp of this great and terrible hour. So what is he going to say to his disciples when the hour has come? If you want to have an outline for this morning, there's going to be two parts. One, the disciples' instructions, and two, the master's example. The disciples' instructions and the master's example. So first, what does Jesus say to his disciples when this great hour has finally come? What is he going to teach his followers? And by extension, what are we to learn? It's been recorded for us. And before we read verses 24 through 26, I want you to think, what would you think Jesus would say 
when the hour has come? It's an interesting question. We don't have to guess because it's here for us, but it's interesting to think about. Jesus says, my hour has come. He knows he's gonna die. What would we expect Jesus to say? Verses 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever, loses his, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So beginning with an illustration from nature, Jesus begins to lay out the seemingly backwards way of following him. And we've seen this a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew. And as Jacob, Pastor Jacob, will preach through the Sermon on the Mount, it's this backwards way of thinking, almost at the way down, the way to be humble, to serve other people, to turn the other cheek, is actually the way that you live and that you obey Christ. So Jesus says, if you love your life, you will lose it. That's strange. If you hate your life, though, you will keep it. The teaching itself, as we'll see, is not backwards or confusing, but the difficulty in, is in, in us actually obeying it. So think of a grain of wheat, Jesus says. Unless that grain of wheat falls, right, it dies, it falls, and goes into the ground, goes into the dirt, it remains alone. But if that grain of wheat does fall, if it goes in the soil, if it's buried, if it dies, then from that is going to bear much fruit. So think of the paradox. If the grain lives, if it stays on it, on the plant, there's going to be much fruit. But if it falls, then there's going to be life. Through death comes life. This is the paradox. So easy enough, we can understand this. The grain of wheat must fall and die. I'm sure many of you have been farmers or no farmers, and you know this. But I want to remind us, friends, that Jesus is not talking just about grains of wheat. Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him in this life. What does it mean to be a disciple? The wheat is the illustration. The disciples, you, me, we are to be like that grain of wheat. We are to fall, to die and bear fruit. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what does it mean to hate your life? We're not talking about self-loathing. To hate your life in this world, I would say, is to place something higher than yourself. To ascribe more worth or value to something other than your own life. And not just something, but someone. So to love your life in this instance is to put self-priority, self-fulfillment, or self-preservation as the highest goal that you have. That is loving your life in this world where you try to hold on and grasp and get and get everything you can. And if you do that, if you try to keep yourself at the center, your pleasure at the center, you are going to lose it. You won't be able to hang on. You will not bear fruit. You will lose your life, but not just when you die physically, which is coming for all of us, unless the Lord returns, but you will have no inheritance or honor from the Father for eternity. But if, 
if you hate your life in this world, meaning if you account yourself as nothing in comparison to the value and the worth of our great God, our heavenly Father, his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, we will gain everything. We will keep our life for eternity. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to see a similar teaching from Jesus here that might shed light on this dying, dying to self. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Mark 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, and calling to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You can see the similarities there between John 12 and Mark 8. Deny, take up the cross, and follow me. And I want us to link this together in our minds. Dying, like the grain of wheat, dying and denying yourself. Think of those as synonymous. And Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, so not just the disciples, the apostles, it's not just for super Christians, It's not just for people who are in vocational ministry. If anybody would come after Christ, they must deny themselves. They must take up a cross, an instrument of torture, and they must follow after Christ. So linking these two things in our minds, dying and denying ourselves. Okay, it's not just physically dying. It's not as if only martyrs can obey this command of Jesus. But we are called to deny ourselves every day, to die to ourselves. We can all die to ourselves. It looks like saying no to gratifying our sinful desires, saying no to our own hopes and aspirations, and instead serving the Lord Jesus and other people. Even when it's hard and taxing, when you don't get any return for it, when nobody notices, even when it means that obeying the Lord Jesus will lead to your death. This plain teaching of denying ourselves, saying no to our sinful desires, is exactly why those two examples at the beginning of the sermon are so terrible. A disciple cannot hide a small cross, be hidden from the outside world, that nobody knows you're a Christian, that you never take a stand. Our faith is certainly private, but it's never just personal. If there's zero evidence of our faith, Scripture would tell us that we should not have assurance of our salvation. If we follow Christ, it will be known. A disciple must also never harbor secret sin and never practice self-denial. See that in the second example of Bart. Jesus is plain, and we have to take that today. In this room, if we're harboring secret sin, we need to deny it. It needs to die. What is it going to profit you if you harbor a secret sin? God sees it and God knows. Could it not be that a harbored sin now is a seed that when fully grown could result in you turning from the Lord? 
Certainly in the example of Karl Barth, he would have had that seed already in his heart. Something like living with both your wife and a mistress is not something that probably happens on the turn of a, on a, on the turn of a dime. We need to starve our flesh. We need to say no to our sinful desires. We should praise God that he is not unclear about his will, that he does not place us in an impossible dilemma between this really feels good, but the Bible says no. We should always obey what scripture says. And that is better for us. It is the way that God would have us live. And through that more difficult route of saying no to our sin, that is when true life and fruit comes. Jesus says, if we turn back to John chapter 12, in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And remember the context. This is right on the cusp of the hour. Where should we follow Jesus? Where is he telling the disciples to follow him? It is to the cross. The hour has come, and he is going to be crucified. He is going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to fall into the earth like that grain of wheat, literally buried under the ground, sealed in. Like a grain of wheat, Jesus himself dies, and from his death is going to spring life. Through this one man's death is going to come life, fruit, for everybody who follows him. And it's a good reminder that the Lord Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he himself has not done. So let's look at his example. Point two, the master's example. Jesus gives us this hard saying, deny yourself. The things that feel good to you, that are clearly marked out as wrong in scripture, it needs to die. You need to kill it. As John Owen said, you should be killing sin or it will be killing you. We need to deny ourselves. Jesus gives us this hard saying, but the Lord Jesus himself provides us the example. Look back at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And I want us to stop there. Can you imagine that? This is the eternal word of God, the one through whom all creation comes, the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word. He's taken on flesh, lived the perfect life, always in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit, never sinning, but ever closer drawing to this hour. And what does he say right before it? As he's about to face the full wrath of God against sin. He says, now is my soul troubled. Think about that, the suffering of Christ. Think about in our struggle against temptation or denying ourselves. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was sweating drops of blood. His soul was troubled. We need to meditate on the suffering, the perfect obedience of Jesus when we face temptation. The Lord Jesus is our perfect example. He does not shrink back. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, that's not what he says. But for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. And the Father resounds back from heaven, there's a thunder. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Think of that scene. 
Jesus presses on toward the hour when he will be brutally beaten. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be given a mock trial. Think about the sufferings of Christ. He's going to be hung on a cross naked, exposed to pay for sins that are not his own. But with you, brother or sister in Christ, with you in mind, he's going to take all that reproach. And we know from Hebrews 12 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But let's not make light of it. Jesus suffered. He did for the joy set before him, but he still had to go to Calvary. He still had to suffer. That's our example. We should press on following Christ. In verses 32 and 33, we read what's going to happen. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It is through the cross, through the lifting up of Christ, or thinking of the grain of wheat, through that grain of wheat dying and falling into the ground. It is only through that that people will be drawn to Christ. The death of Jesus is absolutely necessary for our salvation. It is the only way that my sin can be atoned for, for your sin. We cannot do it ourselves. No work we can do can atone for our sin. It is only through the work of Christ. And so I want to be vital and just be crystal clear at this point. Jesus is not merely an example for us. He is an example. But he is actually working out our salvation. He's doing something. Namely, forgiving our sins. Giving us his righteousness. Providing a way for us to be saved. So Jesus is our example. We should follow him. But remember that Jesus is the only perfect man. Jesus won salvation and it's applied to us simply by grace through faith. Jesus is our example, but praise God, he's not merely an example. He is actually our salvation. So if we would follow Jesus, we must hate our life in this world and deny ourselves. It is through death that fruit comes. And what does fruit produce in our lives? John 15, 8. Bearing fruit brings the Father glory and so proves you are his disciple. Being like a grain of wheat and falling into the earth, dying, denying yourself, saying no to your own sinful inclinations, taking up your cross and following Jesus, this is not the grounds of our salvation, but it's the natural and necessary response that we will have if we've placed our faith in Christ. It is the mark of a disciple. Would you follow the Lord Jesus? And I look out and I see people, praise God, who say, yes, I am and I want to all the more. Then we need to deny ourselves. How can we actually deny ourselves and hate our life in this world? I want to start with the first thing that we must do. You can see it in verse 36 of John chapter 12. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The first thing we do is we believe in the light. This is Christ. We cast ourselves on Christ with true faith, with trust, and we are reconciled. And he will make us children of the light. He will enable us to obey. 
A transforming work will be done in your heart. Jesus will send the Spirit to you, indwell you, empower you to live a life of what? Achievement? Success? He's going to empower us to live a life marked by dying. A life of service to Christ and others. A, a life that seems backwards to the watching world. We can be certain of this because Jesus says so. I will make you or you will become sons of light. And this promise has been proved throughout history. Think about the Apostle Paul and the Apostles. He says this in 1 Corinthians, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and men. Or in 2 Corinthians 6, I want you to notice this paradox. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by endurance, in hardships, afflictions, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, by genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is that paradox of through death comes life. Look at the example of the apostles. Christ enabled them by the power of his spirit. You can think of the early church or the church history class we've we covered the early church in the medieval times. We see the struggle, the persecution. You think of the Reformation. You may even have a grandparent or your own parent in mind who pressed on in the faith, maybe was persecuted for it. Christ will enable us. He turns us to children of light and he enables us to be his disciple through the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, we too can actually obey that hard command. By the power of the Spirit and clinging to Christ's promises, we can truly bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We can die to ourselves daily and follow Jesus. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work, both to will and for his good pleasure. So practically, what does this look like? Okay, we place our faith in Christ, and now what am I supposed to do? We're gonna cover just a little bit. We could spend a lot of time, there's lots of commands in the Bible, but, but overview to those who are married. Husbands, you are called to deny yourself for the nourishment and growth of your wife. You are to be like Christ, to sacrifice yourself for your wife. Wives, you are called in return to lovingly support and submit to your husband's leading, as the church does to Christ. There's clear instructions for us. Those who are married, did you know the Apostle Paul called his singleness a gift? And he said, I wish others were like me. Use the best of your time. Make the best use of your time and your energies to serve the Lord Jesus now. Serving the Lord Jesus should be your number one priority, both for married people, I'm not saying it's not true for married people, and also for single people. And I wanna encourage you, if you are single, 
Paul calls it a gift, press on to know the Lord Jesus and serve in ways that other people can't. Young people, the book of Proverbs, youth is not playtime. The world is not sports and games and leisure. Now is the time to gain wisdom. Now is the time in your youth. The habits you set now, whether gratifying sinful desires or denying it, is going to set you up for the rest of your life. Now, while you can, study, gain wisdom. As a church body, do we practically deny ourselves for the people sitting next to us, right? We're called to love one another. And then we we should read that, we should look around in this auditorium and say, these are the people that I've covenanted with. These are the people that I'm serving Christ with. I need them to help me, they need me to help them. Do we practically serve our brothers and sisters for the sake of the gospel and for their good? Are we slow to anger if somebody uh, rubs us the wrong way? Do we forgive and bear with one another? Jesus' command to hate our life in this world, to deny ourselves, to bear fruit, touches every aspect. We're not gonna cover all of them. Just a little overview. It's hard for us to hear Because it's easy for us to think that we have some excuse, some circumstance in life in which we don't have to deny ourselves, right? Could be on one end of the spectrum. I'm only 15, I'm only 13. It's not my time to serve the Lord. That's for the older people. Then you have older people who are retired. I've already served the Lord for 40 years. What is everybody else doing? This makes me angry. And it's just this back and forth. We can deny ourselves practically by serving this church body, by serving your families, denying ourselves, seeking to love one another. And as I preach this sermon, I feel my own inadequacies. I know that I don't do this perfect. Right? If you know me, you know I don't do this perfect. So we need each other. I need you to help me to follow Christ. We need to spur each other on and not neglect to meet with one another. Christ has won our salvation. He's purchased it for us. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. And now we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God will enable us to do it. What does that look like? Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, being like a grain of wheat, falling and dying. What is a disciple for? In part, a disciple is for what we see here, to obey and be like his master. Christ is the master. His example is set down before us. Not only is he our example, he is our savior and he empowers us to obey. We can truly deny ourselves because of Christ, because of his promises, because of his Holy Spirit, and because we have each other to spur each other on. So I'm going to pray towards that end that the Lord Jesus would help us to follow his example. And I ask that you please pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word and for the Lord Jesus who is the word incarnate. As we think about these words, it just does not strike right to the natural man. It is so easy to come home from work or from something difficult and to just want to be served. And Lord, you know our frame that we are but dust and we do need to rest. 
but I ask that you help us to know when to press on, to deny ourselves. I pray that there would be no hidden or secret sins in our hearts that we're harboring. Would you help us to starve our flesh? I pray that by your spirit you would make us more godly, more like Christ. I pray that even now as we come to the Lord's table, we think about the fruit of his work, his life and his death, and his resurrection. Would you help our hearts to be warmed? Would you help us to obey you in true faith? I ask this in his name, amen.